Job chapter 15. <clears throat> Let's begin verse 14. Brethren, let us hear God's word. What is man that he should be clean? And he which is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Behold, he putteth no trust in his saints. Yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. How much more abominable and filthy is man which drinketh iniquity like water. Oh, may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his infallible word. <clears throat> Although his intentions may have been good, Eliphaz the Temanite was not good at assessing the cause of Job's excruciating agony, nor encouraging him in it. As a matter of fact, Job declared him and his friends miserable comforters. And nevertheless, while his assessment of Job's suffering missed the mark, Eliphaz's understanding of man's sinfulness is biblical and accurate. Eliphaz is saying in these three verses, how is it possible for degenerate man to be clean? How is it possible for him to be righteous? If God is so holy that his angels and uh, or his holy ones and heaven itself are impure by comparison, how abominable and filthy is sin-drinking man? Eliphaz's words uh, drive us to ask, how did man, created in the image of the thrice holy God, become the very illustration of evil? Eliphaz looks at man and uses him as the very illustration of what is evil and filthy. What happened to man? Now we must search God's infallible revelation to answer these questions. And as we do, let's remember the two questions with which we began our study. Who is God? And what has God done to save sinners? Now we've spent two messages answering the first question. Who is God? Of course, we could have spent many more. But I think those two messages established the biblical foundation that God is the Lord God Almighty, the Sovereign of heaven and earth, who rules over all things. And we've answered Pharaoh's question, Who is the Lord? So tonight, we begin to answer Eliphaz's question, What is man? Since we have spent uh, two messages answering the first question, the rest of our studies will ultimately be tied up in answering the second one. What has God done to save sinners? And we have to begin with Eliphaz's question in order to properly understand it. 
What is man? What's his condition? How did he get that way? What does God have to do to save men in that condition? Now that brings us to the study of radical depravity. Radical depravity. Even in Eliphaz's early days of antiquity, he understood that man is unclean, unrighteous, abominable, filthy, and drinking iniquity like water. So let us uh, study together man's depravity so that we might rightly understand God's, God's great salvation by grace. And uh, we want to begin tonight with these two heads. First, the meaning of radical depravity. And secondly, the biblical testimony of radical depravity. So let's take up the meaning of radical depravity. Now, in order to understand God's saving grace, as I just said, we must now take up the sinful condition of man. Now, there are three categories that man must fall into, one way or the other. And as we study, I want you to determine from the Word of God which category it is. Number one, either man's okay, or two, man is injured, or number three, man is dead spiritually. Okay? Man is either okay spiritually, he's all right. Number two, he's wounded. He's injured. He's got some problems. He's just kind of bunged up spiritually. Or three, he's dead spiritually. Now, how we understand that will have a direct impact on how we understand what God has done to save sinners. If we're wrong about the condition of man, the very least we'll be wrong in is the way we preach the gospel. The worst is that we totally misunderstand the gospel altogether. <clears throat> now, historically, man's sinful state has been called total depravity by those who believe in the glorious doctrine of God's sovereign grace. As we begin our study of man's depravity, we must first make a crucial distinction. We must understand the difference between utter depravity and total depravity. Utter depravity means that men are as wicked as they can possibly be. But this is not what the Bible teaches. And it's not what we mean when we say total depravity. Total depravity refers to the deep and devastating effect of sin upon men. Total depravity means that the corruption of sin reaches to the very core of his being. The Bible does not teach utter depravity. In other words, the Bible does not teach that each and every man thinks, speaks, 
and lives as wickedly as he possibly can. That's what utter depravity would mean. Every single man, woman, and child that ever has been, is now, or ever will be, will think, speak, and do as wickedly as uh, imaginable. Oh, we know that's not true. Now, unfortunately, those who disagree with our understanding of Scripture often misunderstand us to teach utter depravity when we say total depravity. And that's why I agree with those that believe that we ought to use the term radical depravity. Because I think that more clearly conveys what the men who used the word total actually meant. And it clears up some of the difficulties in the use of the words. Radical depravity, the word radical itself, comes from the Latin radix, which means root. The Bible teaches us that sin has pervaded every part of man and has permeated every aspect of his being. The body, the soul, the mind, all of man has been stained. All of man has been contaminated by sin. That doesn't mean that every single thing he does is as bad as he can possibly be, but it does mean that everything about him is contaminated down to the very core of what he is. And that's what we believe. That's what the Scriptures teach. Every part of man is contaminated and corrupted by sin. Radical depravity. So, when the Bible speaks of the plague of the heart, it means that sin has contaminated the very root of his being. He is radically depraved, not utterly depraved. Radically depraved men can appear to be extremely religious. They're doing something that in the eyes of the world is very nice, very good, very wholesome, at least to some people. But it can still be radically depraved, as the Pharisees of the Lord's day proved. So, I hope that's clear. Those who disagree with us very often accuse us of teaching utter depravity. And then they spend all their time trying to prove that to be wrong. Well, we agree with them. We don't teach that. We teach historically total depravity, by which we mean radical depravity. So, let's consider then the biblical testimony to radical depravity. <clears throat> And, was, and as with all of our studies, this cannot be exhaustive, but will at least have a good foundation. We want to consider man before the fall 
and man after the fall. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and verse 31 tell us that God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was, look carefully at the two words, very good. That's the biblical language. The Holy Spirit instructs us here that man is male and female, that is, mankind is male and female, and that Adam and Eve were like God and represented him, not like God in the sense that they were infinite eternal beings, but that they reflected His glorious being in themselves. They were like, but they were not gods. <clears throat> James chapter 3 verse 9 affirms this, telling us that men are made after the similitude, the likeness of God. There is a God-likeness about man. But something tragic happened. Man sinned against his Creator. God had clearly commanded Adam, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. As I've pointed out many times, those last four words of Genesis 3.6 are the most tragic as far as the the far-reachingness of, of their impact of, of, of all of Scripture. In those four words, all the sorrow, all the tragedy, the guilt, the shame, the disease, murder, rape, perversion, greed, immorality, and calamity find their source. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 29 declares... God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. In their fall, they have sought many corrupt, defiling things. Why? Well, let's talk about man after the fall. Let's find out what happened in the fall and what followed on the heels of that tragic event. God created man and declared him very good. Now, I always hate to disagree with people. It's just not my natural constitution. But we have to because of the truth. And I, I humbly submit that uh, men that I have very deep respect for use a word regarding men with which I disagree. Very often, even very good teachers of Scripture say that man was created perfect. And that's the word they use. Man was created perfect. <clears throat> but perfection, as I understand it, and as I have studied it over the years, 
uh, can only ultimately be attributed to God. That is a perfection of deity, uh, a, uh, an attribute of deity. God is perfect and therefore immutable. Because He is perfect, He is immutable. He cannot change. Man was created very good. He was very good. He was created in the image of God and he was very good. There was a righteousness to him because he reflected, or in him, because he reflected the glory of his maker that was not tainted, corrupted by sin. He was very good, but he was mutable. And that's the difference. God cannot change. Man as a creation could. And man did radically change. God had warned, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. This was a certainty. Now the word death means separation. Though we often think of death simply as the termination of human life, it is much more than that. In the moment that Adam sinned, he was spiritually separated from God. Now his body didn't drop over and cease to biologically function. He didn't die in that way. There is no contradiction in Scripture. In the moment that he ate, he did die. But it was a spiritual death. It was the separation of man from his Creator spiritually. Now when we stop and think about it, as we understand biblically when someone dies physically, what what is that? It is the separation of the soul from the body, is it not? Uh, Again, we tend to think of it simply in terms of, well, the body quit working. But the, the point is, there's a separation. That which is ultimately the life has separated. It's departed. It's gone. The body decomposes and goes back to the dust of the earth. It becomes the worm's banquet. So, Adam's physical death came later. It followed his spiritual death, which was immediate. The one led to the other. Our separation from God spiritually, ultimately, uh, was tied to the fact that we die physically. It was all one package. But the immediate result was the spiritual cleavage, the spiritual separation between God and man. So Adam, though he was walking and talking, spiritually died and was separated. This is why the God that he had known in warm fellowship now became something fearful. Someone to run away from and hide from. He felt shame instead of fellowship. Fear instead of love. Alienation. 
instead of a glorious union. Now the Bible clearly demonstrates that sin radically at the core, the root, changed man. And we can see that going from Genesis chapter 3 right into chapter 4. Genesis 4 records for us that Adam's son Cain, the first child born in history, as we recently studied in 1 John, murdered his brother Abel. It didn't take generations and generations and generations of men slowly going downhill to where they got bad enough to where they might kill one another. Brethren, in the first generation, man murdered. He killed. Why? Because he was cut off from God. He was separated from God. He was angry when God would not receive his faithless offering. And in his anger, he viewed his brother and he killed him. He viewed him with with detestation. He hated him because his works were righteous and acceptable and his own were wicked, lawless, faithless. There was a radical change. Man's sinful condition passed from generation to generation until we reach that tragic statement in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. Genesis 8.21 says, The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. And notice, man's heart, the thoughts of his heart, What are we talking about? The root of man. Radical depravity. Why was there wickedness that spanned the globe of such uh, a, a, an awful and abhorrent nature that God in His holiness wiped it all out? Where did that come from? It came from man's heart. The source of man's problem is clearly declared in the Scriptures. As uh, early as Genesis, Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, The heart has a few problems. No. Is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Brethren, you in your natural state are so vile, abhorrent, loathsome, and detestable in your desires that you cannot understand the depths of your own wickedness. Now you might think, of course, that you're a pretty fine fellow, especially in comparison to any of the uh, standards that we hold up as wickedness. Well, you know, I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler or what, what people generally point to. Uh, 
But brethren, we're talking about a radical problem. When we hear this, we have to ask, ask ourselves, is man okay spiritually? Is he wounded spiritually? Or is he dead spiritually? The heart is deceitful. Now, if there's one of you that has lived more than, at least in my thinking, three or four years on this planet and has enough self-awareness to know something about yourself, and I'm talking about even when you were lost, you can't explain why you did some wicked things that you've done. You look back at them and you examine them and you think, you know, how did I do that? Well, you're just, at that point, your life is simply being the commentary on this verse. Perhaps you were raised in a home where you were taught good and bad, righteousness and evil. And you were told, now, this is wrong, we don't do that. This is bad, this is wicked, we, uh, we eschew this, we flee from it. But... Uh, or, or I should say before I put the but in there, and say, and normally we say right. Okay, good. And and we have standards. As we get older, you know, we say, I wouldn't do that. And I wouldn't do that. And I wouldn't do that. Mom and Dad have told me, or the pastor has told me, or, or all of them have told me, these things are wicked and these things are good. And then the day comes when we do them. We face them. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves in that thing that we thought we'd never do. And then we do them. And our consciences sting for a while. But we never stopped, did we? We rarely went, oh, that was bad, I'll never do it again. Unfortunately, then we begin to kind of develop a taste for it, even if it's vile and hateful and loathsome. that we know it's wrong. We know when we do it, we feel like filth. And yet we can do it and not feel bad for a moment. It's only later. Brethren, the heart is deceitful. It looks at what you know you've been told is wickedness. And just for a few minutes, it just doesn't look that bad. In fact, it looks pretty good. In fact, why do people make such a big deal about this? Your life is the commentary there upon that verse. The heart is deceitful. It's lying to you. And desperately wicked. Who can know it? We're not able to even understand how low we can fall. We look at other people and think, boy, they're pretty bad. When we do it, it's not quite as bad, is it? It's not quite so filthy. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3 says, Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil. You hear that? The hearts of the sons of men is full of evil. And madness is in their heart while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. What an incredible statement. 
All those things that you think are so great and so wonderful and so much fun, the God of heaven and earth says, it's madness. It is self-destruction. It is suicidal, physically and spiritually. You damn yourself and think it's wonderful. Oh, what a great time we're having. I remember once hearing, uh, I won't even profane the pulpit this evening by mentioning the name of this particular rock and roll band, but they were very, very famous. And, and I remember in a younger time in my life uh, hearing a young man who'd been able to scrape up enough money to get the exorbitantly expensive tickets to, this, to see these people. And uh, someone asked him, and the next day, after they came through, they said, Well, how was it? And he said, Oh, man, it was great, man. I got, I got loaded. I, I threw up everywhere. I mean, it's just like we had a great time. I didn't remember most of it. That's madness. This is lunacy. And yet, his friends were going, Yeah. Yeah, great. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we covet, we fornicate. And we say, it's, it's all right. And God says, it's madness. What's the problem? Our hearts, they're full of evil. The Lord Jesus Christ says in Mark chapter 7, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts. You're sitting there. A wicked thought passes through your mind and you begin to toy with it and play with it. Where did that come from? The Lord Jesus says here, your heart vomits it up. Now, surely, it's true, the powers of darkness can make their suggestions. But even then, when there's an alien suggestion, why do we toy with it? Why do we let it stay? From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, Wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Brethren, do you hear the list? And this is not at all an exhaustive one. It's simply the Lord telling us in, in the clearest uh, terms. The physician of the soul is now giving the diagnosis. And it's, it's a fatal disease. He says, all these evil things come from Within. And defile the man. We are radically depraved. Everything about us is stained with the filth of sin. And while we may be able, in the presence of one another, to do things that appear to be virtuous by our standards, because of those wicked, stained hearts, even our best efforts are sinful and unacceptable to God. 
This is why a man can never be saved by his works. You see, we, because of our blindness and our ignorance, we tend to think that if we do something good, we do something that externally is acceptable, then God has to take that into consideration and say, that, that was alright, you did pretty well there. But you see, if you study the Scriptures carefully, righteous acts are only righteous when they flow forth from righteousness. This is why God loathed Israel's sacrifices when they brought them in a heartless and unbelieving way. Was there something wrong with the sacrifice? No. Go back to Cain and Abel. It wasn't the content. It was the hearts with which they brought them. I hate your feasts. Well, he, he was the one that founded them. I hate your sacrifices. They're an abomination to me. They're a stench. They stink to me. Why? Well, on the out, outside, they looked fine. The external was fine. But the inside was dead men's bones. Radical depravity. First Corinthians chapter 2.14 says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. We are unable by our wicked hearts to discern what is right. Now hear the power of these verses. Brethren, if these things are true, and of course they are, they're the Word of God, but if these things are true, they cannot but impact how we understand the will of man. And we're not going to look at man's will tonight. That's in a study coming along. But this is what I want you to lay hold of. All this talk about man's will rarely seems to take seriously what the Bible says is attached to man's will. A radically depraved heart can never will what is righteous. It can't discern them. It cannot understand the ways of God. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. They are foolishness to him. Why? Because of his heart. It's full of evil. It's deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. It can only vomit out the wickedness that stains the core of everything it is. It doesn't mean that every man does everything as wickedly as he can, but it does mean that even his external righteousnesses are vacant of proper spiritual motives. Let's look at the description of man's problem now that we've looked at the root of his problem. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you 
hath he quickened the Lord Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write to these former pagans who have now embraced Christ by faith have been made alive in Christ and he says you hath he quickened you hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins dead in trespasses and sins wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. Now, we're not going to do a, uh, an exposition of this passage tonight. We don't have time. But we do want to draw just a few things out of it. Let's look at it carefully. The first thing we're told is that man is dead in trespasses and sins. Now, brethren, if you go into a cemetery tonight and you stand in front of all those gravestones, you can say, get up with your most dignified command. And nobody's going to get up. You can plead. Oh, please get up. Oh, please. You don't know how I need you to get up. Not going to happen. You can get angry. Get up! Get up! Go kick at the gravestones and stomp on the, on the graves. But nobody's getting up. Whether you plead, whether you weep, whether you dance for joy, the dead don't rise at our commands. Why? <laughs> Isn't it obvious? They're dead. There is not that which animates, which can respond. It is an impossibility. The mechanism for what you are demanding doesn't exist. Brethren, this is the spiritual condition of men. When we look out there, the world is a spiritual cemetery. Perhaps you've heard the old adage called beating a dead horse. Any of y'all old enough to remember that? You ever heard that? Mostly the old people. Some of you. <laughs> I see some blank stares out there, so obviously I'm not going to connect with everybody. There was the old term, beating a dead horse, where that came from, or at least some of the things I've read historically say where that came from was from the days of the Pony Express. And uh, they didn't have uh, cars and trucks like we do uh, today. And to carry the mail, they would put somebody on a horse and he'd run that steed and he'd run it as hard as he possibly could to get it as fast as he possibly could to the next place. But sometimes they overdid it. And they literally ran the horse to death. Now once that horse drops dead from under you, you can plead with him. You can get angry with him and kick him. You can take out your whip and you can just flog him as much as you want, but he's not going to get up. You're beating a dead horse. It's a useless endeavor. Brethren, we cannot make men live spiritually. We don't have that power and they don't have it within themselves. This is what Paul is saying. You hath he quickened who were not wounded, 
not okay, but separated, dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein, in time past, ye walked. So what do we have? First of all, man is dead in trespasses and sin. Secondly, it says, ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So man is not only dead spiritually, separated from God, but man lives according to the ways of the world, which the Bible tells us is the very opposite of God, and under the power of Satan. He's a slave. He's a prisoner. Now once again, all of this impinges on who he is and his so-called will. How many slaves are free? It's a contradiction. If you're a slave, you're not free. It's that simple. Is that, is that correct? It's not some things hard to believe are actually spiritual controversies. Man is a slave to, his, uh, to the lusts of his flesh. Look, it says, <clears throat> among whom also we all had our conversation. Now that's King James English for our behavior, our lifestyle. We all had our lifestyle in times past in the lust of the flesh. All of us. Who's speaking? Paul. What was Paul before the Lord saved him? As religious a man as you could find on the planet. And what is he saying? I lived in death and darkness under the prince of the power of the air. I was walking according to the course of the world. Hey, Paul, you weren't a whoremonger, and you weren't a drunkard, and you weren't a, a, a sodomite, and you weren't a, 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 a drug dealer. What are you talking about? He was dead. And the very religious practices that he was involved in were abominable to God. Because he was separated from God. And they were not done with a heart of love for the living Christ. He was doing them to earn his way into heaven. He was a slave. Listen, religion is a lust of the flesh. Don't ever think any different. Religion outside of Christ. There's a proper use of the word religion, but I'm using it in the sense of religions, Christless religions, those are a work of the flesh. Read Galatians chapter 5. Witchcraft is a work of the flesh. Because we're inherently religious beings. We were made in the image of God. Something in us knows there's something greater. Something, there's some power outside of us. goes on to tell us that we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Man is under the judgment of God. So he's dead in trespasses and sins. He's separated, cut off from God. He lives, and that's why he lives in ways, in the ways of the world and under the power of Satan. He's a slave to his lusts and uh, uh, whatever they be. For all these things, he is under the very judgment of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 says, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. In other, way, in other words, don't live like these lost heathen. How is it that they live, Paul? Would you describe for us, please, what you're talking about? Paul says, that's fine. I will. It's in the vanity of their mind. 
the emptiness, the futility of their mind. It's going nowhere. Having the understanding darkened. Having the understanding darkened. Being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. There it is. Alienated from the life of God. Separated from God's life. The ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Now let me ask you. Again, I'm preempting myself to a certain degree, but what kind of will would be attached to a vain mind, a darkened understanding, one separated from the life of God, and a blind heart? What good could that possibly accomplish? How would such a thing be possible? Well, this is exactly why our friend Eliphaz said, What is man that he should be clean? He can't. What about the man born of woman? How can he be righteous? How is that possible? Man lives with a darkened mind, alienated from the life of God, and it says past feeling, past all pain, spiritually numb. Sin has given him a vital injection that has numbed him out to the things of God. He doesn't feel them. Now, this doesn't mean that the lost man doesn't have twinges of conscience once in a while. But a twinge of conscience is not the same thing as Holy Spirit conviction. He's past that. He doesn't feel it, except God work a miracle in him. Now, let me press on. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways in the way of peace. They have not known. There is no fear before their eyes. Well, what does Paul tell us here? First of all, man is not righteous. He's not righteous. Man does not seek God. Now, at this point, you press that hard enough, a lot of people will get hopping mad. They go, ah, that's, that, that's not true. You go all over the world and you see religions everywhere. Men are seeking God everywhere. I've heard, quote, evangelical preachers get up and say, Ah, you see, I mean, there's this, all this talk about depravity. It's, it's ridiculous because here's, here men, even you go to the farthest reaches of, of uh, uh, darkest Africa, and what will you find? You'll find people you know, gathered around a tree, you know, worshiping God, worshiping a stone, worshiping a bird. I mean, they, they all... You know, they all want God. They just want God. Well, what is Paul saying here then? What Paul is saying, if we take the, the tenor of Scripture altogether with this, is that as the God of the Bible is revealed, 
in his glorious revelation, men in and of themselves will not seek him. They run from him just like Adam did. Once Adam was aware of his sin, he ran. There is none righteous. Paul tells us here that there is none that does good. None of them do good. Well, now, wait a minute. There are these organizations out here and they build nice uh, hospital for, for burn patients. And here's this other group over here and, and they feed the poor. And here's this other group over here. And some of them are even atheists and they go out and they build houses for people after tornadoes blow their houses down. What are you talking about? That's good, isn't it? Well, from our perspective, it's a very good thing to rebuild someone's house when it's been blown down. But remember, true righteousness begins with the heart and does all things to the glory of God. Ask the atheist who he's doing those things for and he will tell you, I feel good when I do that. I feel good about myself when I help people. It's all selfishness. It's pride. It puffs us up. It's not, I do this to the glory of the living God. I do this because God has had mercy on me and therefore I show mercy to others. It's, well, let's do this. It makes us all feel good. Except it be done by faith. It is sin. That's why the scripture tells us that which is not of faith is sin. So it can look good to men and be utterly vile and corrupt. Hateful to God. Finally, Paul tells us here that man is morally perverted. That's what he's saying. There's none that seeks after God. There's none that's righteous. There's none that does what's right. He's morally perverted. And it speaks of his tongue and all of his acts. Now, what are the fruits, then, of man's problem? His heart. Well, because he is radically depraved, we hear from Paul again in Romans 1, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Those made by God refused to give Him the glory He so rightfully deserves. And then, in their utter darkness, and in their confusion, and in their perversion, they began to worship all the things that God made instead of the God that made them. That's what radical depravity does. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie. If man's all right spiritually, why would he change the truth of God into a lie? He does it because he's dead. In his ignorance and blind heart, he worships a rock instead of the God who made the rock. For this cause God gave them up into vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. 
And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust, one toward another. These acts are not acceptable acts. They are the manifestation of radically depraved hearts given over to what they naturally want. They want what is backward. They want what is perverse. They want that which ultimately destroys that for which it was made. And that's why he can go on to say, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do them, but have pleasure in them that do them. It's not violent, it's, it's not violent enough that we like to do these things ourselves. We like for others to do them with us. We like to initiate those who haven't gotten down and wallowed with us into our pig pen. Brethren, some of the most grievous wounds to those that have been converted are when they sit back and look over their lives and see where they themselves have introduced someone to some wickedness and they're still in them. Eliphaz pointedly questioned Job, What is man that he should be clean? It wasn't a rhetorical question. He said, Job, you've been justifying yourself before God, but I've got to say something to you here. What man can hoist himself up before God and say, I'm all right? While Eliphaz was wrong about some things, he was dead right on this one. He which is born of a woman that he should be righteous. He put no trust in his saints, yet, yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. How much more abominable and filthy is man which drinketh iniquity like water. Brethren, the only hope for men in this condition is the grace of God. The only hope for those who are spiritually dead is that for someone who has life to give them life. Dead men cannot make themselves alive. Physically or spiritually. Brethren, it grieves me to tell you that most of evangelicalism today believes that man can help God make him alive again. Make himself alive. This is grave error. Very serious error. Brethren, the God of heaven and earth saves His dear children by quickening them together with the Lord Jesus Christ, by coming by the glorious power of His grace and raising the dead to life again. He calls them by His glorious gospel and gives them eyes to see and ears to hear and new hearts to understand and to believe. 
He makes the dead to live again. Now that's another study weeks down the road. But we're not going to leave man in the grave here tonight. God in His mercy saves sinners. But if what we are seeing is the case, and it is, and as we will develop it more in the next few weeks, then man can do nothing to bring himself to spiritual life. And this is why Paul says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not only the fact that we do not do works that make us right. It's the fact that He breathes life into us so that we repent, believe, and do those works that He's ordained us to from before the foundation of the world. We have a God who saves by grace. What is man? That he should be clean? He has it a hope apart from the grace of Christ. Come ye sinners and believe on the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Father, Oh, when we consider that men are no more than zombies spiritually. The living dead walking around with no life, no spiritual life, separated from God, turned in, destroying themselves and others. Destruction and misery in their ways. What is man? But you in your mercy, O oh God, come to the likes of us, and by your great grace you save us. O oh, come and awaken the dead, and turn them to the resurrected Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.